Ukraine recognizes civilian gun rights as Russia invades, and an update on state preemption laws. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can pick up a membership today if you want to get this podcast a day early or have the opportunity to appear on the show yourself. We're always looking for members to come on to a, another member segment, one of my favorite parts of this podcast. Um, and you'll also get access to dozens of exclusive pieces of reporting and analysis on firearms from a sober, serious perspective, something that's sorely lacking, I think, out there in our modern media landscape, uh, oftentimes on no matter which side of the aisle you're looking at. But uh, this week, we are going to be speaking with Anthony Constantini, who actually, we just published an analysis piece from on thereload.com. So uh, Anthony, why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Hey, yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm currently working on a PhD in uh, Vienna, Austria on early American populism and the democratic spread uh, under Andrew Jackson. Uh, previously before that, I spent some time in Russia where I got a master's in arms control and strategic studies, uh, specifically in St. Petersburg uh, state. Um, and then I lived in some other cities there and in a former life, I worked for um, some Republican political institutions in Washington. Uh, and even before that, I was born, sadly born in New Jersey and raised in Pennsylvania, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, the better of the two in my book. <laughs> yeah, so I'm from uh, near Philadelphia, so we're ah, likewise. probably not far from each other there. But, uh, you know, that master's degree you got, we're going to put a little bit of that to work today. Your piece at the reload was specifically about the the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Russia has invaded Ukraine. Uh, as of today, we're filming this on Thursday, so things are moving very quickly. Um, they've invaded the entire country, had airstrikes across many cities in Ukraine, and are pushing in ground troops to try and occupy the entire country. It seems to cut off the government um, and in, it's a terrible situation. It's fast moving. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, you know, tonight, let alone when this podcast comes out on Sunday uh, for members and then Monday for everyone else. But uh, there have been a few developments that are relevant to what we discuss at the reload, which is, uh, you know, firearms policy. We've seen in recent days the Ukrainian government liberalize its gun laws and open up the ability for civilians there to not only own guns, but carry them. And so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. This isn't obviously a, a, a national security or international uh, relations podcast, but in the ways that this reflects on gun rights uh, and how they might impact this larger struggle between Russia and, and the Western allies, Western countries. Uh, we're going to discuss a bit of that. We're going to try to, you know, it's, it's a horrific situation. So we're going to try to keep it um, as focused on, on the policy as we can without, you know, trying to venture too far into um, anything too sensitive, uh, obviously, when it comes to this ongoing 
deadly war that we're seeing. First war, first ground war this size in Europe since since the Second World War, really. Um, but just want to ask you real quick um, to start off this new law. You took a look at the specifics of it uh, in Ukraine. What exactly does it do and how does it compare to what the previous regime of gun control was in, the, in that country? Sure. So when Ukraine gained independence just over 30 years ago, um, one of the things that Ukraine and most countries that came out of the Soviet bloc had to deal with was that they had to basically, a lot of the time, build laws from scratch. And because you have to build so much, sometimes things kind of slip through the cracks. So one famous case is that um, Hungary, for example, had no law dealing with insurance fraud. Uh, and they only found this out five or six years ago. And for Ukraine, uh, guns basically kind of fell through the cracks. And since their independence, uh, all gun regulations basically were done through fiat of the interior minister, who's effectively the top cop, kind of like a combination of the FBI head and the attorney general, something like that, for, for the United States at least. Um, and he usually adopted a, you know, kind of the standard European line of, of making it relatively difficult to, to get firearms, nothing out of the ordinary for, for the continent. Um, but there was always technically the possibility that you get a new interior minister who just kind of didn't want to like firearms and could just sign them away and that's that, no more firearms. Um, and so there had been attempt after attempt in the Ukrainian Rada, the parliament, to try to pass some sort of law codifying gun laws. And they had tried repeatedly, but it was never a, a pressing issue because obviously they were building a country and then they were you know, in, in re a revolution in the mid 2000s and obviously the events of the last eight years. Um, but one of the main reasons that finally helped this to move along was that in 2019, you had Sluga Naroda, who was uh, serving other people. It, it was a brand new party that kind of just swept the country. Um, and they were the first party in Ukrainian history to get a majority in the parliament. And that really helped finally be able to move it along. Because even while it was a big tent party, but it was still one single party. and You didn't have to kind of wheel and deal as much. Um, and so the main difference fundamentally is that this law actually puts into effect the idea that you do have a right to own a firearm in Ukraine. Um, uh, the the I believe the exact wording that the speaker of, of the Rada used was that it, the, the sacred right of self-defense, um, because it, it really does do things. It starts off, you know, the, the notion in Ukraine that you have the right to uh, self-defense and, you know, God willing, things work out. They'll expand that over the years. Um, but secondly, it effectively more or less kind of instituted a uh, stand your ground law nationwide. Um, which was a pretty big deal because in Europe, that kind of thinking is very rare. Um, it's really not common. You have kind of some for gun enthusiasts, diamonds in the rough, uh, like the Czech Republic or to a lesser degree, Austria. But the idea that anywhere you are, you can defend life, uh, health or property is, is relatively speaking, not a, a super common uh, common uh, proposition. And, and this law right. uh, put that into effect, which was a pretty big deal. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, uh, well, actually, we still have debates over that uh, very concept here in the United States, even though we have some of the um, the strongest gun rights protections in the world um, and stand your ground concept of self-defense is uh, really very prevalent here in the United States. Not every state has it, but most of them do. You still see uh, gun control groups, even the, the biggest ones, Everytown and Giffords. I believe Everytown is uh, actually 
been pursuing a uh, campaign just this week to try and remove stand your ground protections in in most states um and they have been obviously for for years but uh so you know obviously we're coming at this from a american perspective on gun rights uh which as you just outlined there is is pretty starkly different from the european perspective in most cases on gun rights and uh, you know what what makes this whole conversation i think relevant to people here in the in the united states is that unfortunately it, it seems um there's going to be a, a real test of the basic ethos that most americans um ground their belief in the second amendment on it's essentially that an armed populace can more easily resist uh tyrannical oppression obviously you have um undeniably a tyrannical oppressor trying to literally take over ukraine by force and um for a long time in america we've held the belief is on the in the gun rights community at the very least that an armed populace will prevent something like this obviously you know we we have a history here of uh, exactly that our it's baked into our founding as a country but you don't see this attitude much in europe anymore uh and so that's what makes ukraine's shift on this issue interesting right yeah yeah because generally speaking i mean from a from a gun rights perspective western europe is is kind of hopeless i don't know i think the russians would have to be kind of knocking on the eiffel tower for them to maybe change change the kind of structures that they have um and to a degree if you're you know coming looking at this from an american perspective it's not going to seem like it's overly exciting you know uh for example pistols are still only restricted to athletes um it's really hard to, if you want to say a, a revolver, you have to be in some sort of dangerous profession, so a judge or a journalist. Um, but for one, um, in, in, in defense, is that the, uh, excuse me, Ukraine hopefully one day will be in the EU. That's been their goal. That's what they've always wanted. And the EU is surprisingly pretty loose on gun laws, but one of the things it mandates is if you want to buy a semi-automatic, you have to um, get a license for it. And automatics are banned. Uh, and they, they try to gently nudge uh, member countries to require licenses for everything. And all countries, aside from Austria, do require licenses for everything. Austria, you can buy bolt actions and a revolvers without a license, but they're alone in that. Um, but some countries have kind of found creative ways of, of getting, not getting around this, but kind of embracing it. Like, for example, the Czech Republic makes it incredibly easy to get licenses. It's, it's kind of just like a driver's license. Um, and they basically staple a concealed carry permit to your license. So, you know, out of all of the people who have firearms in the Czech Republic, two-thirds concealed carry. And you don't even have to be a citizen of the Czech Republic. You can be a citizen of a NATO member state and, and get the right to concealed carry there. So there are certainly some some places in Europe that have kind of um, uh, embraced right to bear arms to, to the degree that they can. But from, from, your, from your piece, it seems like the conclusion that I got from it, at the very least, is that if Ukraine is successful in thwarting this invasion, especially through the help of civilian resistance, armed resistance to Russian 
military operations that could inspire other European nations, especially those with borders to Russia, to adopt similar policies on civilian gun ownership. Is that the basic idea that you're that you're mentioning here? Yeah, um, because um, Russia is, you know, I guess sticking with Ukraine here, Russia is looking at a country that has had three revolutionary events over the last 30 years. Um, all of them, whenever they had a leader who was kind of going off the constitutional path or, or getting too dictatorial, they overthrew. And there were times, uh, like uh, most famously in Maidan uh, eight years ago, when firearms came into that equation. And Russia knows if they do attempt to, you know, subdue this country, um, that they're going to have to deal with a population that is very used to using um, firearms and, and to, to defend themselves and to overthrow oppressors. Um, which kind of, you could almost see a hint of that even today. Uh, when um, the Kremlin's uh, spokesperson said one of their, um, let's say, conditions of, of Ukraine surrender would be that Ukraine uh, de-weaponize. And while you could take that as no military, it's also patently obvious that they would de-arm the civilian population. Um, because while Putin's uh, you know, strength isn't as uh, weak as we would like to think it is, it's not overwhelming. The Russian economy is going to be in tatters if they then also have to deal with their soldiers kind of coming back wounded or worse from a really heavily armed insurgency. Uh, people aren't going to like that. That's what helped to end the Soviet Union in Afghanistan was an armed insurgency. And um, the Russians are very aware of that. And so that's going to be one of the things they will try to kind of renege on is uh, to take back the, the guns. And so you do see uh, countries which are usually lauded by the American right wing, like Poland or Hungary, which are extremely restrictive when it comes to firearms. It's, it's very difficult to get a permit. If you go into a police station there and say, hey, I would like a permit for self-defense, you're kind of going to laugh you out of it. Um, you might see them kind of looking over the border and saying like, oh, hey, it, again, if an insurgency is successful, we'll see. Um, and you almost certainly would see some sort of, of shift there. It, it would be hard. They'd be hard pressed to, to avoid that. Right. And I I will say that um, clearly thus far, you've seen a lot of Ukrainians who are willing to fight, uh, including civilians. Um, you know, we, we've had reporting from multiple outlets talking to people in Ukraine, New York Times, Newsy, um, several local outlets uh, there spoke to people who are um, really training for exactly this, this scenario that's unfolded. And, uh, you know, here, here's a quote from this is uh, a clinical research doctor who was talking to the New York Times names uh, Marta Yuskiv. Yuskiv, I apologize for the pronunciation, but they said, quote, we have a strong army, but not strong enough to defend against Russia. If we are occupied and I hope that doesn't happen, we will become the national resistance. And then another person they spoke with, the Times, 56-year-old uh, advertising executive, uh, Ihor Gribanovsko, I again apologize for the pronunciation, but he said, the more coffins we send back, the more Russian people will start thinking twice. So it seems that there are certainly people who, in Ukraine itself, who understand exactly what you're talking about here and agree with the basic concept of armed resistance to this invasion. Um, I believe the Ukrainians are trying to recruit uh, several hundred thousand volunteers, civilian volunteers, to join uh, what they're uh, 
calling territorial defense forces, which, and I guess going back to your earlier point, this is not really a new thing in Ukraine. Uh, after the revolution in 2014, the, the fighting that um, initiated this invasion or was sort of the center of the piece or the focus of this up until uh, Putin decided to invade the entire country, uh, but the, the fighting near the Russian border, um, a lot of that was done in the early days by civilian volunteer forces. Um, and those forces have now been sort of formalized as part of the Ukrainian military. Uh, and that's what the, the territorial defense forces are. And so they've been training people in how to, you know, create IEDs, set explosives, shoot rifles, uh, coordinate with one another in a more cohesive unit. Um, and you've seen pictures out of Ukraine where people are flocking to these recruitment centers that they've set up for these groups. And um, so, so you know, I think it's clear that there is quite a bit of appetite for this kind of resistance in Ukraine. Do you think that's fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the the ironies, uh, you know, uh, uh, is saying in Russian, the irony of fate. Uh, and one of the, the ironies of, of the fate that has kind of befallen Ukraine is that in an attempt to kind of get Ukraine to agree to his demands, Putin instigated the, the war in the East for the last eight years. But in doing so, a lot of Ukrainians received military training and they learned how to teach military training to others, uh, which is you can even see now uh, as of the current time in the fighting, the where area where the Ukraine is strongest is in the East. It's not in, in the South or in the North, it's in the East where they've been fighting where they're used to fighting. Um, and that uh, kind of uh, way of thinking has really gotten into the population. The first time I was ever in the country was, was 2018 and I was there for a conference on arms control and we were talking about missiles. And, um, and I remember a guy had to leave early. And I, and I was like, oh, where are you going? He said, oh, you know, these missiles we're talking about. And I said, yeah, he said, oh, I have to fire them at the Russians. Uh, and, uh, and so you have, you know, and he was, he was you know, someone my age, he was, you know, it's, attending a, a college seminar and he was going and you know, could kind of take his turn there. And so you, you have this really, um, people are used to the idea of war. Uh, they're not, you know, uh, there's a lot of Europeans and I say this, you know, with, with love uh, for Europe, you know, a lot of Europeans who have pretty much only seen guns in movies, you know, um, and Ukrainians have not. They're, they're, they're used to this and, and they're ready for this. Uh, you have a lot of militias, some which have, have received some controversy in, in the the Western press, but are, are generally speaking respected in Ukraine, uh, which have really trained people for, for free and, and shown people how to fight. And they're not kind of, uh, you know, LARPing kind of people who just, you know, buy uh, expensive, you know, tactical gear and they, they know what they're doing. They're effectively, you know, an, an unofficial part of, of the Ukrainian forces. Um, and those are all going to be spread throughout the population, even if Russia is able to get to Kyiv and, and at, you know, says that they have have a new new president, something like that, these people are still going to be there. Uh, so it's not just going to be kind of a simple matter of, oh, now you have a new president and everyone's just going to deal with it. Yeah. And, and obviously there's been some reporting on, of uh, significant Russian casualties. And we've seen, you know, social media videos of tanks and helicopters being downed. Um, it's, it's hard to know exactly, obviously, what's going on. Uh, on the ground in Ukraine without being there uh, directly. There's all kinds of reports uh, that indicate 
the Russians are moving quickly. And there's other reports that indicate there's significant resistance. Uh, I think one thing I'd like to get into, though, is the reality uh, of this situation. Because I think in, a, in America, in the, especially among gun rights uh, advocates, it's easy to think of these things only in a theoretical or imaginary way, right? Like, I mean, uh, certainly personally, I absolutely believe that it's much harder to oppress an armed populace than otherwise. And that you often, in pretty, you, you see uh, totalitarian dictators disarming their uh, populace, you know, without fail, certainly. And um, I, you know, I, we just laid out there the case for why it's certainly uh, reasonable to think that this could help in the Ukrainian people's struggle against uh, these Russian invaders. But I also want to just talk a little bit more about the, the realities of this. This is what we're talking about is is terrible situation. You know, it's it's going to be very awful in Ukraine. I, I think you, you've mentioned some examples of where this is, has um, been successful in the past, uh, specifically Afghanistan is now, you've seen uh, two major powers lose wars there, um, not necessarily because they uh, were outgunned by the local population, but they were outlasted. And um, you've seen this, you know, countless times in history, including, as I alluded to earlier, the American Revolution, uh, here in the United States, uh, you had also Vietnam, and uh, and, uh, and there's plenty of examples of inferior military forces winning these sorts of, of wars uh, if their population is willing to resist with violence for an extended period of time. And perhaps the Ukrainians are, but it's going to be ugly and it's going to be horrific and, you know, the scenario you just talked about is like the Ukrainian government and military is unlikely to survive the full onslaught of the Russian military just because of the, the balance in force. And you're going to have to see a, a protracted fight that's going to likely be very brutal um, for the Ukrainian people to prevail in this. What are what are some of the. Um, things that, you know, perhaps American gun rights enthusiasts aren't, aren't used to calculating into these sorts of equations. I would say the, the key thing is because, you know, as I, as I alluded to in the piece, um, I think if you were to kind of create a scenario for what the Second Amendment was designed for, you know, this is um, individuals and literally well-regulated militias um, fighting for the security of a free state with the right to keep and bear arms. Um, this is, uh, and not, not to get into, too into the weeds of, of geopolitics, but uh, Putin put out a, an essay last year and uh, he gave a very angry speech earlier this week where he effectively basically said the Ukrainian nation doesn't exist. It's not a real country. It's created by the communists. And um, Specifically, he said, uh, "If you want decommunization, I will show you decommunization," which is a, you know, pretty horrific uh, implications. Um, and so, you know, this isn't just a, uh, you know, a, a squabble like say, 
even even when you look at something like World War One, you know, it was awful. But Germany wasn't fighting to make it so France did not exist, and France was not fighting to make it so Germany literally did not exist. Um, you have one power coming in who literally is saying, "I want to make it so your nation does not exist anymore," um, and in in the fullest way possible, which is something we haven't really seen often. Um, and so the, the Ukrainians are, are literally fighting for their, their nation, uh, you know, not just families, not just homes, which in itself could be enough, but literally for, for the idea of who they are. Um, and that's something which Americans have been very fortunate that, um, you know, even in, in very serious moments, you know, and, and I would never, you know, talk down about what we've had to do to, to fight, you know, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but we were never under threat in terms of our nation will not exist. You know, it, it, terrorism was terrible, but there was no chance that Osama bin Laden was going to make it so America could not exist anymore. And so I think the gravity of this situation is something that um, I, I would hope that the pro-gun community would see. Because you, you have noticed a little bit to a degree some on the right who have almost seemed to not embrace uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia, but kind of look somewhat favorably upon what they think he's trying to do when it comes to say things like, uh, you know, traditional values and things like that. But, um, and again, I don't want to get too into the weeds, but I, I would say, you know, to borrow a Russian phrase, a lot of that is a Potemkin facade. And if, if, if we talk about defending ourselves, we talk about defending ourselves against either, you know, a tyrannical government that springs up in our own territory where that comes from the others. The Ukrainians have done this time and time again. You know, again, in, in our lifetime, they've done it three times. Um, and so, so that's, it's the kind of thing that I, I would hope that the program community in the United States would really look favorably upon and, and really, you know, like uh, root for. Right. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense uh, to me. My question, though, would be some, uh, you know, I think there's a practicality question here as well. So Ukraine did this literally as they were being invaded by the Russians. Is it is it too late? Uh, you've seen, I think, Charles Cook at National Review suggested uh, that this is, you know, he's supportive of what's happening, but that it's coming too late in the game. Um, I believe the interior minister last year told uh, local media there in Ukraine that there are 1.3 million uh, civilian-owned firearms in the country of uh, of about 43 million people. If you compare that to the United States, we have over 400 million civilian-owned firearms in a country of about you know 320, 30 million, whatever the number is now. The point is, uh, Ukrainian adoption of individual gun ownership is far lower than it is you know here in the United States. How much of a practical impact can the civilian population have if they're only just getting their, uh, you know, this individual gun right as they're being invaded by, uh, you know, a, a major world power? So the one thing I would say is that um, official Ukrainian statistics uh, sometimes are a little bit off with those only because as a developing country, uh, you know, they, they've been uh, working themselves out and but as a result of kind of, of coming out of, you know, being basically part of the Soviet Union is that up to one sixth of their economy was black market. So there's a lot more guns than than the, the government officially has. I think um, 
actually, even in the bill that was passed, uh, they usually have to also pass an explanatory note that kind of says why it's being passed. And they credited that there's probably up to at least 6 million guns in the country. Um, and that was most likely a conservative estimate. There's probably a lot more. Um, so this is, relatively speaking, especially for Europe, a pretty heavily armed population. And again, it's, it's a population that knows. Um, this was more of, you know, again, God willing, in the future, it'll it'll be developed. But for now, it was, it was a statement. You know, it was... Uh, not an accident that one of the last acts Arata passed before the the invasion began was to say you have the right to to self defense uh, the sacred right to self defense they called it you know because it's not they know it's not just them they're, they're defending it's their nation um, and so this it, it wouldn't the law itself was more so a, a defense law um, uh, the guns that you could buy before you, you uh, excuse me the guns that you could buy after the law you could still generally speaking have bought before it was harder. Um, but you could still kind of get it. And especially over the last uh, couple of months, as fears of invasion expanded, you did see a lot of people running to gun shops, uh, business. I mean, you could, there were a thousand stories in the Washington press talking about how business was booming there. Um, so it was that's, more, oh, sorry, please. Uh, well, I would just say that's, that's interesting way of looking at all this, uh, that I hadn't considered before, frankly. Um, this is more of a sort of a symbolic uh, movement on the part of the Ukrainian parliament to um, embrace the idea of armed self-defense as they're being invaded by uh, their neighbor. That's that's how you view uh, really the, the the way this came about. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's 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 definitely not an accident. They when in the the same explanatory note, they didn't say Russia by name because the government was trying not to cause a panic, but they basically said everything but because we're going to be invaded and you have to be able to defend yourself. Um, which is interesting because the one issue, uh, you know, I, I lived in Russia for a couple of years and I'm in, I'm in Austria now. And usually we can, uh, you know, understand each other, you know, when I'm talking to Europeans and things like that. But the, the two issues that we, that Europeans, no European I've talked to, almost to a, a, a T, has ever been able to understand our, um, the American view on is the death penalty and firearms. It's uh, this very different mentality of, uh, you know, usually the conversation goes something like, why are you so paranoid? Um, you know, why do you think something bad is going to happen to you? Why do you feel the need to carry a gun? And I, you know, you're a part of the, the gun rights movement. I'm part of it. Uh, you know, we're not paranoid, you know, pulling at, you know, every uh, noise. Um, but it's basically this American idea of, you know what, be prepared because something bad is going to happen to somebody. And if it's going to happen to me, I'm going to be ready. Versus this European idea, which has really developed in the post uh, post war era, that you know nothing really bad is probably going to happen to me. I'm probably going to be fine. So why do I need to to take these extra steps? But in places like Ukraine, um, in places like uh, the Czech Republic, and uh, in the Baltics, which are also relatively for Europe pretty good on guns, um, they know bad things can happen because bad things have happened to them a lot over the last seventy years, um, and so. They, as a result, don't really have that, like, you know what, I don't think I need to worry about it attitude. They have, to a degree, a similar attitude that Americans have. You know what, something bad might happen, and if it does, I'm ready, and if not, great. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you know, I, certainly it's it's impossible to envy the position that the Ukrainian people are in right now, but it's it's also impossible not to admire their, their courage, uh, you know, with how some of these people... Um, are reacting and what they're telling everyone throughout the world about their desire to 
defend their home homeland and and uh, you know not let themselves be wiped from the face of the earth essentially um, and you know I, I think it's uh, it, you know it's such a terrible situation I hate to see anyone have to go through this I don't think we you know obviously uh, you know it, you know in a theoretical land you know you can make all the arguments you want about how uh, an armed populace is resistant to tyranny and and you know, here's another example of it. But we don't we don't need another example of it, right? I mean, we've seen it before, and there's no there's no amount of dying in Ukraine by either side that's gonna um, that that's necessary to prove that point, right? And so it's it's tragic to watch. You can only hope that the best comes for the people of Ukraine, but. Um, it's looking at the realities of the situation. I think the the best case scenario here, even uh, as we've talked about it, is is still even if they win, is still going to likely be a long, drawn out period of bloodshed uh, on their home soil among their countrymen. And so it's a horrific, horrible thing to witness. Um, I think for for anyone. No, I mean, I, I would agree with all of that. Um, the only, you know, not to put a positive thing on it, but of all of the people who, who could be ready for something like this, um, you know, after everything they've been through, you know, uh, Holodomor um, being part of the Soviet Union, you know, uh, trying to be independent in, in the 1910s and then again being part of the Soviet Union, um, you know, all the revolutionary events, it's the Ukrainians. You know, no one should have to be ready for something like this. Um, but... The, I do think that the Ukrainians are. Uh, they're uh, some of the most patriotic and, and uh, uh, proud people I've ever met. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, glory to Ukraine, as they say. Yeah. And I think uh, you could leave it with this quote from the mayor of Lviv. He said, um, what are we supposed to do? Stay and wait for them. We won't let them kill us. He said this of people arming themselves uh, in that Western Ukrainian city, well, which uh, is is um, sure to be under attack if it hasn't already been under attack at this point. Um, so, you know, I think it's, I wish the Ukrainian people um, the most luck. I hope we can support them in every way possible, um, just on my, my own personal opinion. But um, yeah, I, I appreciate you coming on to talk about this very difficult subject, um, and, and I hope that uh, we can have you on again, have you write for the site again. I thought you had some really good insights uh, into what's happening there. I mean, obviously, you're also over in uh, Europe as we speak, so you're a little bit closer to the reality on the ground. But um, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on to give your, your uh, take on what's happening give us a little more information about this new law and how it's likely to affect the way this all plays out uh, in Ukraine and perhaps further in the rest of uh, Europe as well. So uh, thanks again for coming on. Hey, no, thanks for having me. I, you know, uh, appreciate it. All right. I'm here with contributing writer Jake Fogelman to talk a little bit about the latest news outside of the situation in Ukraine. Uh, this week, we have a couple stories on preemption, right? State preemption laws that, that uh, sort of prevent localities from 
passing gun laws that are stricter than those at this level. Uh, but what was the first one? We got with Colorado, right? They just repealed their preemption law, and now we're seeing some movement in that state. That's right. So um, we saw a little bit of movement earlier uh, when the city of Denver instituted a, a ghost gun ban. We haven't really seen any major moves in the state just as of yet. Um, as you pointed out last year, they repealed their nearly two decades old uh, preemption law, um, largely because of the city of Boulder. So everyone was wondering, uh, when would the city of Boulder take advantage of this law? Um, and it turns out the city council just um, officially gave the green light to go ahead and start drafting a series of uh, very sweeping gun ordinances ranging from an assault weapons ban, uh, magazine ban, open carry ban, um, and severely limiting concealed carry as well. Um, so they're, they're going full speed ahead on uh, taking advantage of the preemption repeal. Interesting, because uh, Boulder was one of the places that was pushing the limits on this before the, the state law got effectively repealed. Um, they, they had passed an assault weapons ban right and they were gonna start I guess, uh, charging people, rounding them up and arresting them uh, for violating it, right? That's right. Uh, back in 2018, shortly after the Parkland shooting, when uh, gun, gun control advocacy was uh, at its previous peak, uh, Boulder stepped in and did its own ordinance limiting uh, magazine capacity and, as you said, banning assault weapons by make and model. Um, and it, it was sued uh, under the state's preemption law um, and, and uh, over the course of a couple of years in, in court battles. Uh, it was struck down under that preemption law, but in, in 2021, the city actually had a, a mass shooting at a grocery store that spurred new action from the state legislature to to get rid of the preemption law. Now, now here we are. Right. So they're back at the forefront of this fight in Colorado, and they're. I mean, they haven't passed these ordinances yet, right? This is what they're considering doing in the upcoming session here, and there's been pushback already on this from some gun rights advocates, is that correct? That's right, so the Mountain States Legal Foundation was uh, who represented the gun owners in Boulder, the last lawsuit uh, challenging the last assault weapons ban. Um, and they, you know, they talked to me about these proposals that are currently being drafted by the city of Boulder. Um, the, and they're already pushing back and saying, you know, the last time that they tried to uh, institute this stuff, it cost the city a couple of years and, and litigation. Um, and just because that preemption is no longer the law of the land, there are still state and federal considerations. Colorado has a state amendment that guarantees the right to arms. Obviously, the Second Amendment guarantees the right to arms. Um, so you could see, depending on how these ordinances pan out, um, more legal challenges going forward. Right, certainly. But one place moving in the opposite direction is Utah, right? You wrote a story about this as well. Uh, Utah is uh, strengthening their preemption laws, is that right? That's right. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting breakdown. Two states directly next to each other moving in opposite directions. Um, it's kind of indicative of the broader trend that we're seeing in preemption where you have some states moving to whittle away uh, preemption protections or grant more local control for firearms ordinances. And you see other states uh, strengthening state control. So Utah is one of those states where they just passed a bill. Um, they, they already had a preemption law, but they essentially uh, did an enhanced preemption law and gave it enforcement teeth. So if any locality within the state uh, does violate the spirit of the preemption law, they can be sued uh, for civil damages and they can be enjoined by a court order that essentially nullifies any gun control law that they pass. So that's on its way to the governor. I reached out to the governor's office to see if he's going to sign it or veto it. 
Um, they never got back to me, uh, but it, it is a Republican governor in the state of Utah. So odds are there's probably a good chance that it does make it into law. Um, and it's just interesting to see the state of, of preemption fights just between those two states. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's been one of the common complaints among gun rights activists on state preemption laws. Obviously, this was a, a movement that uh, was very successful a couple decades back, getting these sorts of laws put in place uh, to prevent, uh, you know, the, the complaint was always there as a, you know, a spider web of network of different laws, even within a state. And so somebody could get caught up in, in, in that without realizing that they'd done anything wrong. And that was the logic behind these. But there was always a complaint that they weren't uh, really enforceable, or at least not easily enforceable. And so you've seen some states try to strengthen the enforcement provisions by letting people sue over this. And then Pennsylvania had done it, uh, and then that got tossed out on a, a technicality in the way that was passed. Uh, but now, yes, yeah, so now you're seeing other states uh, get into the game on this, other red states at the least. And, and yeah, blue states are, you know, the momentum is in the other direction where they're trying to get rid of some of these preemption laws because uh, they've long wanted to do that, gun control activists, because they feel that um, cities should be able to have different, stricter, essentially, gun laws than uh, the outlying areas around them. And so th they've really been passing these laws out uh, by, you know, as a way of challenging preemption throughout the country. And they've, they've really been losing most of those cases over the years, including the one in Boulder. So now you're actually seeing them have some success in changing the state laws as opposed to trying to challenge them by just, I guess, just violating them effectively. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely something that is going to be a major issue, I think, in the, the gun debate over the next several years here moving forward. And, yeah, you're probably going to see these diverging trends like you see on you know, red flag laws or constitutional carry or any number of these other policies that have moved in the opposite directions, whether you're in a red or blue state. Um, so that's definitely something we're going to stay on top of for sure. Uh, and you're in Colorado, so you have a first a front row seat to uh, this big gunfight there. Yeah, uh, I remember very well in this past last year, um, and to your point about <clears throat> how these pushes to give more local control is, is really just a, a shorthand for only yeah. stricter control. Colorado statute where they repealed preemption specifically says it's called like a local control and firearms regulation act or something along those lines. But their definition of local control means you can only uh, enact something that is more stringent than state law. You cannot do anything less stringent than state law. So it's a kind of a play on words and what local control really means. How much local control do you really have if you can't go both ways? But yeah, it's kind of the exact opposite of a state preemption law. Sure. Uh, or what they've traditionally been, because traditionally they've been about making it so that localities can't pass gun laws that are stricter than what the state has imposed. Uh, and you still see that in the vast majority of the country. You see fights over this constantly in, in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but you've also seen, uh, you know, Colorado is not the first state to chip away at these state-level protections. You saw this in Virginia, where I am, right. uh, as well. Back in 2020, 
the uh, at the time democratically controlled um, state house and uh, governor signed uh, law that repealed parts of the preemption uh, um, statute that we have here in Virginia, which effectively let localities pass their own rules about where people can carry it, let them restrict gun carry in places like parks and government buildings and permitted events or events that should be permitted. So like large gatherings of people, essentially any large gathering sure. of people, um, even if they didn't actually get uh, a permit to gather, you couldn't carry. Uh, so that, you know, and you've seen a number of city in Virginia adopt these sorts of resolutions, including, you know, Arlington and Alexandria up in Northern Virginia near Washington, D.C., and then Richmond, the capital of, of Virginia, has done it as well. So it's definitely something that's not reserved to one or two states, and it's very, very likely going to be uh, an ongoing battle throughout the country. Sure. And uh, it's something that is one of the top fights at the state level, I think, moving forward here over the next five or 10 years. I, I think that's exactly right. You're seeing, especially as local leaders become more active in this space, you see, you see it in California, um, where mayors are starting to kind of get a higher profile by uh, enacting unique gun laws. Um, so if you see that replicated uh, in, in other states that typically don't allow for as much local control, it's just going to continue to be one of these high profile fights. Um, and we'll continue to keep you updated on it because like you said, I think it will be one of the primary things that we start seeing as states diverge on this strategy. Absolutely. And you can stay updated by following us over at reload.com by picking up a membership uh, and you'll get exclusive access to dozens of news pieces and analysis pieces that you can't find anywhere else. Uh, and you'll get this podcast a day early and you'll have the opportunity to appear on the podcast as well. So make sure you check it out. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it uh, far and wide. Anyone else who might enjoy a sober, serious approach to firearms reporting and analysis. Um, you know, we're on YouTube, we're on all the, your favorite podcasting apps. You can find us there every Monday. Um, and if you're a member, of course, you get it every Sunday, the day before Monday. And so we'll see you guys again real soon for the next episode.